Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome as our special guest, Dr. David Vorp. Dr. Vorp is an uh, associate professor of surgery at the University of Pittsburgh, and he also is, uh, has a faculty appointment in the uh, Department of Bioengineering at the university. Welcome, Dr. Vorp. It's a pleasure to have you with Regenerative Medicine Today. Thanks, John. Uh, Dr. Vorp, I know you have uh, many uh, activities uh, in what would be generally characterized as the area of tissue engineering. And uh, can you just briefly give us a, a, an overview of the principal focus areas that uh, you have underway? Well, my, uh, historically my focus has largely been on uh, the blood vessel, uh, looking at uh, the biomechanics of blood vessels uh, in both uh, healthy and disease uh, situations. And then uh, later on, starting to focus on uh, regenerative medicine and tissue engineering uh, related to the blood vessel. Uh, we have, uh, within the last five years or so, have expanded that to include other soft tissue tubular uh, tissues, uh, such as the urethra, uh, the colon, and the esophagus. And we don't limit ourselves to blood vessels. Uh, now, another component of, of all of this is we're, we're trying to utilize the potential of stem cells in uh, the regeneration or tissue engineering of these, these structures. So, I believe from what I've read that the, the, perhaps the most advanced of these areas is the, uh, is the tissue engineered blood vessel. That's right. We've been working on that uh, the longest. Uh, we received funding for that in the, uh, the late 90s and uh, started our efforts in uh, the, the tissue engineered blood vessel at that time. Uh, we have uh, gone through several iterations of design for a tissue engineered blood vessel and, and we're, we're uh, now actually uh, implanting them in, in large animal models after a rather uh, successful uh, set of experiments in smaller animals. So I there's two sets of questions that come to mind. Uh, one is uh, why a tissue-engineered blood vessel, and then secondly, how does one do that? Well, why the blood vessel? Uh, you, one could argue that the blood vessel is the most important organ in the body. Uh, the uh, other organs and tissues within the body uh, need a blood supply and they need support from, from blood vessels. So uh, focusing on uh, regeneration of other, other organs will eventually uh, come back to the need for a blood su supply and uh, need for uh, a regenerated blood vessel. Uh, how we go about it, uh, we, uh, we have focused over, uh, over the last several years on two different approaches. One is to uh, utilize a biodegradable uh, natural material such as collagen or fibrin in a tubular uh, mold. And within this, uh, this, this mold, we, we pour a cell suspension that, that's... Uh, uh, either smooth muscle cells or uh, stem cells and along with the, the collagen and the fibrin into this tubular mold and then culture this for uh, a short period of time and then test its properties. Now we were not happy with uh, the results that we got with the collagen or the fibrin gel uh, approach so we started collaborating with uh, Bill Wagner who I believe did a, a podcast uh, uh, some months ago uh, on his, uh, using his material. He has a, a novel uh, biodegradable material that's, uh, that can be uh, processed in a number of different um, uh, manners, including a, a, 
a thermally inducible phase separation uh, process which yields a, a very porous sponge-like tube and that facilitates its, uh, itself very nicely to uh, using our uh, novel uh, va uh, rotational vacuum seeding device which is a device that allows us to bulk seed in a very rapid fashion uh, cells within a tubular scaffold. Um, now this material that, that Bill Wagner has uh, also can be uh, fabricated uh, using a, an electrospinning process which uh, in, in some instances is, is more amenable to uh, tissue engineered blood vessels uh, because of its strength and its fibrous characteristics. Let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the applications. As I understand it, there's a couple of principal applications that you've considered. And one is, is that uh, this could be a, an alternative to uh, harvesting arterial material for a, uh, a, uh, a cardiac bypass procedure. Is, is that one of the principal applications? That's right. One of the, uh, the most common uh, surgeries in, in the United States, in the Western world actually, is a coronary bypass surgery. And traditionally, um, uh, not, well, 95% of operating surgeons, uh, cardiovascular surgeons, will utilize the saphenous vein, which is the, the longest vein in the body. It's, uh, it has dimensions which are very similar to the coronary artery, but uh, the fact of the matter is that it's, that it's a vein. Uh, it's living happily as a vein in your in your leg for your uh, for your lifetime, and then uh, the surgeons take it out and plug it into the arterial circulation, and uh, essentially asking it to become a different animal, uh, become an artery. Uh, and since our our tissues and cells are very smart, uh, the vascular uh, or the venous tissue that's the the saphenous vein tissue, which is taken and and, and used as an arterial uh, bypass senses the, uh, the change of environment. Arteries are under a, 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 a higher pressure, uh, a higher flow rate, uh, and the, the, it's pulsatile. So the cells within the vein tissue feel all of these stresses and um, uh, will respond. And sometimes that response is an adverse response uh, where the vein uh, will, will thicken and eventually clot itself off and you're, you're left with the same problem that, uh, that you started off with. You have a, a clotted off or a clogged off uh, root of blood flow. So that's the problem with, uh, with vein grafts. Now arterial grafts are, are superior and, and uh, uh, certainly favored by surgeons that are performing coronary bypass. Uh, however, they are very few in number. Uh, while we can, uh, we can function and, and live uh, out the, uh, our, our lives without a saphenous vein and without many vein segments, uh, there are very few arterial segments that, uh, that we can do without, without having um, uh, consequent problems. So the hypothesis or perhaps some of the findings from your research to date suggest that this uh, tissue engineering or tissue engineered arterial material would overcome these particular problems? Yeah, we, we believe that uh, the, the tissue engineered blood vessel would offer a solution to the, uh, to the poor performance of, of vein grafts and to the, the short supply of arterial grafts. Now, ultimately, we, we hope that we will be able to utilize uh, the patient's own cells uh, to populate the, the tubular scaffolds, uh, and, and therefore this, this um, tissue engineered graft arterial graft would actually be from the patient's own own cells. 
Uh, we're working hard to reduce the amount of time that's necessary to fabricate these. And uh, we believe we're at a point now where it's, uh, it's quasi off the shelf, if you will. I mean, it's not uh, uh, plug in immediately uh, at the time of surgery, but we believe we have it down uh, to, the, to uh, a short enough duration that, that it's, it's becoming clinically viable. So the scenario, if I understand it correctly, is that if somebody needed cardiac bypass surgery, uh, that instead of the traditional procedure of harvesting veins from the leg, uh, the patient would uh, uh, come into the hospital or to the clinic uh, some perhaps weeks in advance, uh, their stem cells would be harvested from perhaps a bone marrow or, or muscle biopsy and those cells would be used to culture one of these uh, scaffold, vein-type scaffolds that, uh, that you just described to us, and that's what would be used for the bypass procedure. That's exactly right. The, um, uh, for the patients that are, are not emergent in need, in other words, uh, the elective surgeries, they could come in, and the, the way we perceive it is that they would come in and, uh, as you say, have the biopsies taken, uh, and we would extract the, the, uh, the stem cells from the, the bone marrow or the, the muscle and utilize our vacuum uh, seeding device in a sterile fashion, of course, and seed these tubes and culture the tubes until the time uh, that the, uh, the blood vessel uh, substitutes have matured uh, to the point where they can be implanted and, and serve as arterial uh, bypass. Now, at this point, I should probably mention uh, some of our work with the stem cells and why we believe the stem cells have uh, potential to be used in the tissue-engineered blood vessel uh, application. Uh, we have, uh, several years ago, developed an interest in the mechanobiology of stem cells and just the potential of stem cells for use in vascular applications. Uh, now, many, many folks over... Uh, the last few years have tried to uh, differentiate the stem cells into vascular cell types by using uh, growth factors and, and cocktails of, of biochemicals and, and stimulating factors uh, that would drive the, uh, the stem cells into a specified cell type, such as the smooth muscle cell, which is the, uh, the, the, the primary building block of a blood vessel. Now, our, our um, approach has been uh, different than that. Uh, in that the, uh, using these cocktails and, and, and growth factors in aphysiologic or unrealistic uh, quantities or doses uh, in a lab setting uh, to differentiate the cells and then taking the cells and putting them in the body uh, where the, these uh, concentrations or quantities do not exist of these same cocktails or growth factors. Uh, potentially these stem cells, stem cells could uh, de-differentiate into a different cell type. Our approach has been to utilize uh, differentiating uh, factors or stimuli that would be seen within the, uh, the body even after implantation. So as I mentioned earlier, arteries undergo uh, pulsatile uh, blood flow. You, you feel your, when you feel your pulse, you're actually feeling the, uh, uh, the pulsation of the arterial wall being transmitted through your skin. Uh, they also are under, of course, an internal pressure and they're uh, flowing blood. So there's a drag force associated with the flowing blood. So our approach has been to uh, harness these mechanical factors and to determine whether or not they, in and of themselves, could be 
uh, a stimulus to drive the stem cells to a, um, a vascular cell uh, type, such as the smooth muscle cell. So the, the rationale behind that, uh, that hypothesis is that uh, uh, it's been shown that stem cells will home to a site of injury. So in other words, they will, they will travel from wherever they are actually created, such as the bone marrow or the muscle, uh, and they will arrive at the site of an injury. Uh, in this case, we're talking about a vascular in injury. So once they get there, obviously they are taking part in the repair process and may differentiate on site into a vascular cell. So what is, is, is happening at that spot that is not happening when the stem cell was at its initial position, such as in the bone marrow? Well, one of the factors, again, we believe is, are the mechanical factors, the pressure, the flow, and the pulsations. So we developed a set of experiments to test the hypothesis and to uh, uh, stimulate stem cells with uh, cyclic stretching to mimic the pulsations, with uh, shear stress or flowing, flowing fluid to simulate the, the flowing blood, and with a hydrostatic pressure pulsation to simulate the, uh, uh, the, the, the blood pressure. And we're finding that uh, various combinations and magnitudes and frequencies of these, these uh, uh, stimuli can actually drive the stem cells into a vascular cell type, uh, including smooth muscle cells. And we are um, actually seeing uh, agreement with this, uh, this uh, finding in an, an animal model with our tissue-engineered blood vessels. So we take our stem cells and we uh, seed them into the scaffold, implant the scaffold into the abdominal aorta of, of rats, and then look at, uh, after s several weeks of implantation, look at the histology, and we're finding that the cells that we have implanted uh, are... are um, uh, showing signs of becoming smooth muscle cells. Very interesting. And if I also understand correctly, uh, you've used these uh, metrics to uh, explore the possibility of conditioning uh, veins so that they have the uh, performance characteristics of arterial material? Yes, that's actually a, um, a parallel project. It's a related project, but it's, it's a distinct ongoing project within my group uh, where we are trying to better understand how veins adapt to the arterial circulation and trying to modulate that process so that vein grafts uh, themselves can be potentially uh, uh, have a higher success rate. And the idea there, again, you take a vein which is um, uh, living under uh, relatively mild conditions compared to the arterial circulation, and you plug it into the arterial circulation, it experiences a, a, an inflation and a pulsation that the vein does not normally experience. So the, uh, uh, the, the vein, the, the most noticeable uh, trauma, if you will, to the vein when it's put into the arterial circulation is that it, that it inflates to much greater dimensions than it was then it, than when, when it was in, uh, in the venous circulation. So we believe that if we can uh, eliminate that uh, distension, that inflation, after it's implanted, and perhaps allow that, uh, that arterial stress to be imposed onto the venous segment over a short period of time, as opposed to abruptly, uh, that the vein may condition uh, itself so, so that there's a, a preconditioning type of uh, uh, situation occurring that this, the cells can adapt slowly as opposed to being abruptly hit with this uh, arterial stress and responding adversely. So this uh, 
transition therapy, if I may call it that, is this done in the body or prior to implant? Well, we've, we've looked at two different approaches. One was to take the vein out of the, uh, out of the subject and put it into a bioreactor and condition the, the vein in a laboratory setting with the idea of implanting it uh, maybe after a week or, or even a couple of days back into the patient. Uh, that actually met with uh, some, some skepticism and potential problems that uh, some of the vascular surgeons that I work with uh, brought, brought to bear. And uh, we have since altered our approach to using, again, Bill Wagner's material, this um, biodegradable material in an electrospun configuration where we take the vein segment out of the subject and spin almost like a spider web a, um, a girdle, for lack of a better term, around the vein to keep the vein from uh, inflating and distending to its unnatural configuration. So it, even when it's under the arterial pressure, it does not distend like, like it would if it was not supported by this external structure. So the novel aspect with that work is that uh, we have uh, developed a means to uh, spin this material onto a living vein segment while the vein segment is still alive and do, uh, do not damage it and implant it into, uh, in this case, we're, again, we're working with animal models. Uh, and, and so far, we have uh, seen some early success with that approach. Fascinating. I'd like to go back to the tissue-engineered blood vessel for a moment because in addition to the uh, bypass surgery application that you've described to us, uh, I seem to recall that the other application that to me was equally fascinating was that in, in infants and, uh, and children who have... Uh, the need for cardiac surgery, uh, there are cases where the available arterial material is insufficient and surgeons of necessity use Dacron as, a, uh, as part of the plumbing, so to speak. That's correct. There's actually several other applications to this, and that's one, uh, uh, one certainly important application uh, that could be um, eventually realized. Another one that I should mention uh, which is, is also a very high number of cases in, in the Western world, is uh, use of this material or this tissue-engineered blood vessel as a, um, uh, an arterial venous shunt or uh, vascular access uh, site or va vascular access graft. And that's for subjects who have to undergo repeated dialysis. Uh, so diabetics, uh, th those that have uh, uh, renal failure, that have to undergo multiple needle sticks uh, in order to access the blood uh, for, for dialysis purposes. Uh, many times the, the patient's own material or own vascular uh, uh, material will break down over time because of the repeated trauma through the needle sticks and surgeons will implant synthetic materials. So these synthetic materials oftentimes will clot or fail uh, so there is a need for a, a, an improved uh, material for, th for that application as well. So in that particular case that's uh, essentially re-engineering or, or engineering a, a shunt that becomes tissue. That's right. And in the case of the infants, uh, the advantage is that uh, while children grow, Dacron doesn't grow, uh, this uh, scaffold plus cell structure that uh, you're developing uh, would... Uh, 
becomes tissue, and so it would grow as a child grows. Potentially, that's uh, right. Eliminating the need for multiple surgical procedures to extend Dacron uh, arterial material. That's right. That's the uh, uh, certainly the downfall of using the synthetic grafts in, in children is the, the repeated uh, surgeries that are necessary as the child grows. At the start of this discussion, you said in addition to blood vessels, you were doing many other tubular tissue materials like urethra, esophagus, uh, trachea. Uh, I, I gather that these are uh, uh, newer in terms of their, their time in the VORP lab, but uh, uh, can you tell us some, something about those particular areas as well? Sure. The, uh, the, the most mature of those uh, projects is, is certainly the urethra. We've been working with some uh, urologists here and, and some uh, pharmacologists and physiologists who have a long worked with uh, the lower urinary tract uh, to develop uh, a, a tissue-engineered urethra application. Uh, so I, I should back up uh, earlier in the history of all this and, and um, mentioned that uh, we, we first had to understand better the, the, uh, the biomechanics and the function of the native urethra and how that changes in disease states. And there are actually a lot of various disease states that are associated with urethral dis dysfunction. So spinal cord injury, for example. You may not associate spinal cord injury with urethral dysfunction, but unfortunately uh, many of those that have suffered spinal cord injury do suffer urethral dysfunction. Uh, diabetes is another one. Uh, urethral dysfunction is, is very heavily associated with uh, diabetes. And uh, probably the, the, the largest contingency of, uh, as far as the population that suffers urethral dysfunction are women who have experienced uh, vaginal delivery during childbirth. The, uh, the pelvic floor and the uh, uh, urethra are, are damaged during that process. And many years down the road, uh, they experience uh, urethral dysfunction. Uh, and, and this is termed stress urinary incontinence. So this could be associated with uh, you know, something simple or daily activities such as sneezing or laughing or coughing, where you have urine leakage because of a, 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 a non-functioning urethra. So we've, uh, we did a lot of work to try to understand how this, again, muscular tube is... Uh, is, is functioning in its normal state and in its, in its diseased state and how this function is changed with the diseased state and how the biomechanics are changed in the diseased state. Uh, structurally as well, we, we, we wanted to understand how some of the structural proteins such as collagen and elastin and the cellular composition such as smooth muscle cells, uh, which are also, as I mentioned, in, in blood vessels, they're also in, this, in the urethra as well, um, smooth muscle and, and skeletal muscle how those are changing with the disease states. Uh, once we got a handle on that, we had a, a better uh, understanding of, of some of our design constraints of what we wanted to use uh, as, uh, as our goals for a tissue-engineered solution or a regenerative medicine solution. Uh, so our approach has, has been uh, to go back to our early days of the tissue-engineered blood vessel where we were using uh, fibrin and collagen gels and putting inside of these gels uh, stem cells, and uh, having the hope that these stem cells will, re will differentiate into muscular uh, cells uh, to repopulate the diseased urethra. So we're, uh, we're now molding uh, tubes of, of fibrin uh, 
fibrin gels and uh, slitting the tube open to have uh, a result uh, resulting in a, in a wrap type of a material or a sheet that we can put around the proximal section of the urethra to help support it mechanically and to potentially help repopulate it uh, insofar as its, its uh, muscular components. Most fascinating again. Um, I know many of our listeners are interested in the science and many of them either because of personal situations or that of loved ones are interested in the availability of some of these emerging technologies. Uh, I know you told us earlier that with the most mature of uh, these developments you're still in a preclinical study phase and while I realize that predictions are difficult and challenging, is this something that we might see in a clinical trial in one year, five years, ten years? What's your best guess? Uh, I, my best guess would be it would be within five years. Uh, I, I've been asked that many times over the years, and I think I have said five years every time I'm asked that. And uh, this is the first time that, that I can answer that with a little more confidence because I know that we are now in uh, larger animal trials, and I know there's others ac across the world actually that are that are working on tissue-engineered blood vessels, and uh, they are also in uh, various stages of preclinical trials. So I, I believe just the state of the field in general is is matured to the point where I can say with confidence within five years, uh, and, and certainly the work that we're doing, I, I really believe that um, uh, that we're getting close to seeing some clinical success with it. Uh, we will put on the uh, Regenerative Medicine Today website the uh, link to uh, Dr. Vorp's uh, vascular laboratory website. And so if any of our listeners are interested in uh, reading any additional material or seeing some of the scientific reports that uh, relate to these particular discussions, uh, that will be available to you. Uh, Dr. Vorp, uh, in addition to your pioneering research. I know you're also involved academically with the Department of Bioengineering. Uh, can you give us a brief insight into the bioengineering program? Sure. I, I can uh, uh, speak with um, some authority here. I, I am the, uh, the graduate coordinator for the Department of Bioengineering. Even though that is my secondary faculty appointment, uh, there are a few others like me. Uh, again, I mentioned Bill Wagner previously. He has a similar situation where he's uh, uh, primary appointed in the uh, Department of Surgery and Secondary in Bioengineering, but uh, we are heavily involved with the day-to-day -day operation of bioengineering. And, and I mentioned I am the graduate coordinator, which means that uh, I um, uh, run oversight on the graduate uh, programs of master's students, PhD students. Uh, we, uh, we are proud to say that we are within the top ten of the uh, uh, bi ranked bioengineering departments in the country, and I believe top five of uh, public institutions bioengineering departments. So it's it's a, uh, a certainly a, a very strong department and becoming stronger every day. And our and our close ties to the clinic is really what makes it go go around and make what what makes it successful. Uh, we are close in proximity, just right across the street from the medical school, but very close insofar as our, our uh, academic um, goals. The, the medical school, uh, the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and the Department of Bioengineering are, are really linked in, in, in a, into a partnership, and, and also the McGowan Institute would be part of that uh, as well, linked 
with regards to their overall mission, and that, that is to uh, drive clinical solutions from, from uh, bench to uh, bedside. I can certainly see why the bioengineering department is so uh, highly esteemed when you have yourself and colleagues like you that you have been here on this uh, podcast previously with their pioneering research and very advanced uh, uh, clinical uh, translation initiatives. And let me just say also the, the a bioengineering, bioengineering department is only as good as its graduate students. And uh, now the undergraduate students are also important. Don't, don't let me... Um, Underemphasize the the undergraduate program, but the graduate students are the ones that really drive the research, and we have a, a very very good uh, pool of of graduate students. And again, every year it's getting better and better, and it's more more competitive to get into the program. So we really feel that we have the cream of the crop coming into this program. And I understand you have a very large graduate class as well. That's right. Where currently we have about 140 graduate students. Impressive. Well, Dr. Vorp, it's uh, been a pleasure to learn in more detail about your uh, pioneering studies as well as your academic responsibilities and the accomplishments that are being made there. Uh, I'd like to thank you for visiting with us on Regenerative Medicine today. I'd like to remind our listeners that uh, we're not physicians and we cannot diagnose particular specific medical uh, problems, but we welcome your input to the podcast, and you can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And we thank the McGowan Institute who sponsors this podcast series and look forward to you joining with you in another two weeks for another interesting and exciting podcast. Thank you.